0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 71. One of the more curious stories related to the autopsy is the discovery of an intact bullet during the autopsy proceedings. It was never documented as part of the autopsy materials. The official autopsy indicates that no intact bullets were recovered at Bethesda. Whether it was a separate bullet, separate from Commission Exhibit 399, or whether it was actually Commission Exhibit 399, was a thesis explored by JFK assassination researcher David Lifton. Whether this is the bullet that was found on a stretcher in Dallas, or whether it fell out of the casket during the autopsy at Bethesda, may just be academic. That is, if there was just one bullet and it was the same bullet. In my mind, anyway, it doesn't make much difference where you found it and those two choices don't seem to add much or detract much from the story. And it was important that there just be one intact bullet. It really did fit into the story nicely, maybe the way someone in authority wanted the story to be told. At that moment, remember, they had three spent cartridges recovered from the sixth floor of the schoolbook depository, and they were aware of the fact that a shot had hit the curb and would have to be accounted for. Where it gets interesting for me is whether or not this was perhaps a second intact bullet that was in addition to the magic bullet found at Parkland, a bullet that we all know well. If there were two bullets, two intact bullets, and we also know the headshot produced bullet fragments from another bullet, which would account for a third bullet, Well, then, let's all think back and recall one more shot, the one which we know nicked the sidewalk and caused a minor injury to James Tay. If this intact bullet found at Bethesda were a second intact bullet, then that would mean a total of four bullets had to have existed in the shooting sequence. And of course, that would confirm what everyone suspects that there were too many shots fired too quickly too quickly for them all to have come from the one Mannlicher Carcano rifle. This is not a new concept. We've talked about it a lot in previous episodes, and certainly way back when we covered the Zapruder film. This is just one more avenue that points, potentially, to at least four shots having been fired. And believe me, there are other avenues that lead to that same conclusion. But what's interesting about this story is the basic irreconcilable differences on such a simple fact. Irreconcilable differences between highly credible people regarding their recollection of this bullet at the autopsy that night. You'll hear the details of that when we tell the story. This is not something you forget. Yet, officials who were in attendance at the autopsy that night don't have the same recollection. We are talking about assertions made by Admiral Osborne and also Commander Humes. We're not talking about an orderly, not a nurse, not an x-ray tech. We are talking about the story given by an admiral. Now, one can lie or tell the truth, whether you are an x-ray tech or an admiral, of course. But this story is so amazing because you would never think that an admiral would make something like this up. And I don't think he did. In fairness, he was a captain at the time. I'm just saying. And of course, it's not the only irreconcilable difference in the story of the autopsy. In fact, this is one part of the JFK assassination story that is replete with irreconcilable differences. This story itself is well researched by David Lifton, and it's documented in his best selling book, Best Evidence. And really, the best way I think to tell this story is simply to read Chapter 29 of Best Evidence. It's entitled, The Assertion of Admiral David P. Osborne. This chapter gives a concise and interesting story tell of the whole affair, and it does so from Lifton's perspective regarding whether this intact bullet was really the one that purportedly was found at Parkland and became Commission Exhibit 399. So, without further ado, let's listen to Episode 71 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. this is chapter 29 of best evidence entitled the assertion of admiral david p osborne please note that this is written in the first person by david lifton himself In May 1975, after 34 years of service, Rear Admiral David P. Osborne retired from the U.S. Navy as Deputy Surgeon General. On November 22, 1963, Dr. Osborne held the rank of Captain and was Chief of Surgery at Bethesda Naval Hospital. The House Select Committee reported Osborne's assertion that he thought he recalled seeing an intact slug roll out from the clothing of President Kennedy and onto the autopsy table at the outset of the autopsy. The committee rejected this because no one else recalled anything about the discovery of a missile. The committee also noted that the president's body was unclothed at the outset of the autopsy. They reported that Admiral Osborne had been recontacted, advised of these objections, and then said that he could not be sure he actually did see a missile. I telephoned Admiral Osborne in October 1979, and after receiving a letter from my publisher, he agreed to speak with me. He came to the morgue that night because he was an old friend of Hume's, whom he referred to as Jim. Admiral Osborne told me that when he arrived at the morgue, the casket had not yet been opened. It was a very elaborate casket, he told me, as one might expect. It had not yet been opened, he said, and in fact, Humes was insistent that the casket not be opened until everyone had arrived. We were all standing there, Osborne told me. There was quite a delay because the casket was opened. Actually, because they were waiting for everyone to arrive that Jim wanted to be there, everyone included Dr. Pierre Fink, Jim didn't wait to start until Colonel Fink got there. Admiral Osborne told me that the delay lasted at least fifteen, twenty, thirty minutes, something in that neighborhood. There were other men present, he said, urging that everything be rushed and done as quickly as possible and get it over with. Jim was insisting that he wanted to get additional help. At some point, it is not clear from Fink's testimony whether it was before he had arrived, but the casket was open. And it was then, according to Osborne, that a reasonably clean, unmarred bullet fell from the clothing that he said was around the body. The bullet was not deformed in any way, Osborne told me, He said that he and the committee had gotten into a disagreement. Not really a disagreement, but I told them that this was the way I remembered it. And they said, well, it must be wrong. Because the Secret Service testified that the bullet was found in the hospital at Parkland and brought back to Washington. And so I said, well, if that's true, then they brought it to the morgue because I had the bullet in my hand and looked at it. I was startled to hear Osborne say he held the bullet. The committee reported only that he thought he recalled seeing the slug. You had the bullet in your hand, I asked. That's right, he replied. You actually held it, Admiral. That's right, he said again. Did you tell the committee that? Yes, he said. When I asked Osborne if the bullet had any blood on it, he replied, No, it was reasonably clean. Was bullet 399 at Bethesda? There is a clear chain of possession on bullet 399, the only intact bullet in this case. A chain of possession from Parkland Hospital to the FBI laboratory. It traveled from Dallas to Washington in the pocket of Secret Service Agent Richard Johnson of the White House Detail. At 7.30 p.m., Johnson gave the bullet to Secret Service Chief Rally at the Executive Office Building. At 8.50, Rally sent it to the FBI Laboratory. The bullet was not at Bethesda. At least, it was not supposed to be. If, however, it was, that would mean that no decision had yet been made as to where the bullet would be found. In any event, Osborne's impression that the bullet might have come from Parkland Hospital was not a legitimate explanation for its presence at Bethesda. Osborne and I discussed the matter further. Who else held the bullet in their hands besides you, by the way, I asked. Do you remember? Several people had it, said Osborne. I know the Secret Service had it. Have you ever talked to Humes about the question of whether he had a bullet there, a whole bullet, that night? No. I tried to call Jim after you called me, but he's been out of town. I haven't been able to get a hold of him. I wanted to talk to him before I talked to you. I now read to Admiral Osborne the paragraph in the report in which his assertion was rejected. Where it was... Passed off as something which he thought he recalled seeing. Osborne replied, Well, as far as I am concerned, that's a lot of malarkey, because there was a bullet there and it was totally intact. What happened to it, I don't know, but the Secret Service took it. Let me call Jim Humes when I can catch him and talk to him about it and see what I can jog out of his memory and see why there is this discrepancy before we go on. Later, I came back to the matter again. Osborne again said he would be sure to contact Humes on it, to resolve the matter, because I just can't see any reason for it, and I don't understand it. Still, later, I returned to the matter again, pointing out to him the seriousness of the assertion that the bullet in question never became evidence. Well, the bullet existed, he replied. I'm sure of that. The only concession I made to the committee when they called me was the fact that they had led me to believe that the FBI or Secret Service had carried that bullet back and deposited it somewhere in the headquarters or something or other and, and that it didn't fall out of the clothing at Bethesda. And I told them on the phone that I wouldn't argue that point too much as to whether they would carried it back or whether it fell out of the clothing. As I remembered it, it fell out of the clothing but I know that it was there because I saw it. It fell out on the table, and I think everybody spotted it. All of us were right there. We spotted it at the same time, essentially. As soon as I could, I telephoned Humes and apparently reached him before Admiral Osborne did. He apparently did not know that Osborne had been interviewed by the committee. When I told him of the basic allegations, Humes replied, I don't know where he got that. You mystify me with that story. Dr. Humes told me that Dr. Osborne was a super nice guy. I asked him how long they had known each other. Dr. Osborne and I have been friends for 25 years, said Humes. The conflict was so irreconcilable that I was forced to ask Humes. I was curious whether he, that is Osborne, is getting on in years. Humes interjected, no, he's a very bright, intelligent man. I, I don't know what he's talking about. But then Humes made a remark that I found rather curious. It was almost a concession. He said, well, they found a bullet in Dallas, and whether they brought it there to Bethesda or not, I, I can't tell you. I don't even remember that. I, I don't know. It was not my problem at that point. Then Humes said, Certainly, no bullet came with the wrappings of the president. And I wondered, what did Humes mean by wrappings? The sheet that was there when the body came in? Or the clothing that Osborne insisted that he saw? Did someone change the wrappings? Following these conversations, I reviewed the Osborne assertion from the standpoint of the record. The FBI receipt was dated November 22, 1963, it was issued by Seibert and O'Neill to Captain J. H. Stover, who was Hume's superior. Its exact wording was, We hereby acknowledge receipt of a missile removed by Commander James J. Hume's MCUSN on this date. This receipt apparently remained in Admiral Berkeley's possession until November 26, 1963. On that date, Berkeley gave the receipt for a missile, along with the autopsy report and other related paperwork, i.e. a copy of the Navy order not to talk, the receipt for film holders, the receipt for surgical drapes and shroud, he gave them to Agent Robert Bauk, head of the Protective Research Section of the Secret Service. Upon receipt of these items, Bauch issued a receipt to Admiral Berkeley on Treasury Department letterhead. The seventh item on this Bauck receipt was the FBI receipt, listed as one receipt from FBI for a missile recovered during the examination of the body. Inexplicably, Bauck never gave the Warren Commission the FBI receipt itself, and despite the existence of the Bauck receipt in the Commission files, an official Treasury Department document alluding to an FBI receipt for a missile. There is no indication the commission ever took notice of that or investigated the matter. The critics first learned of the FBI receipt when Bauch's receipt, which was an unpublished Warren Commission document, came to light in 1966. In 1969, after critic Harold Weisberg threatened to go to court to sue the Secret Service under the Freedom of Information Act, for the items of evidence listed on Bauch's receipt that were not at the National Archives, the Secret Service turned over a file of documents to the archives, and the FBI receipt for a, quote, a missile was among them. Subsequently, when I questioned the FBI about the receipt, they took the position that the receipt was for the two tiny fragments Hume said he had removed from the brain that that was the only metal Seibert and O'Neill brought back to the FBI laboratory. Curiously, in the autopsy report, Humes referred to the two tiny fragments, saying, these are placed in the custody of agents Francis X. O'Neill Jr. and James W. Seibert, who executed a receipt, therefore attached. But actually, no receipt was attached. There is evidence indicating that at some point, the authorities may have had an informal conference of sorts to decide how to explain this receipt, which reached the National Archives in 1969. My correspondence with the FBI about the receipt occurred in 1970, and at that time, I attached to my letter a copy of the Bauch receipt I obtained from the National Archives. I drew a small arrow pointing to the seventh item on the Balch receipt. The FBI assigned a file number to my correspondence. Years later, I directed a request under the Freedom of Information Act to the Secret Service for the original Secret Service copy of the Balch receipt. I had been told by a staff member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence that the Secret Service files were in disorder, and that certain items were missing. Shortly thereafter, I received from the Secret Service what purports to be their official copy of the BALC receipt. Immediately, I noted something appeared odd, because although the document was originally in the possession of the Secret Service, and although my request was directed to the Secret Service, the document I received had in the lower right-hand corner an FBI file number. I requested Robert Ranfell, a researcher in Washington, to go to the FBI files and find out what FBI file number was on that bulk receipt. In other words, I wanted to know why the Secret Service was issuing a document which apparently came from the FBI file. Ranfell excitedly called back to inform me that the FBI file number was the one assigned to my correspondence. In short, what the Secret Service now had in its files, as the supposedly official copy of the bulk receipt, came from my files. It is a Secret Service copy of an FBI copy of my copy of an archives copy. And what does all this mean? Well, until Admiral Osborne's statement then, the record shaped up as follows. First, there was on the one hand, a receipt for a missile, but no missile in evidence corresponding to that receipt. Second, there was a jar containing two tiny metal fragments, but no receipt that seemed applicable to that jar. Yet the FBI stated in their own report that they had executed a proper receipt for those two fragments. Therefore, until the Osborne assertion, the natural conclusion was that the receipt for the two fragments was simply worded badly. The Osborne assertion cast everything in a new light. It raised the possibility that there was an incident at the outset of the Bethesda autopsy, or at least at a coffin opening which was witnessed by Admiral Osborne, at which a bullet, which looked like bullet 399, fell from the vicinity of the body. I now realize that if Admiral Osborne was correct, if he saw this bullet and held it in his hand, that did not necessarily mean that the bullet was brought back to the FBI laboratory. Indeed, Osborne was firm on who had the bullet. I know the Secret Service had it, he told me. Did they keep it? Osborne's account raised the possibility that the bullet existed, that it was at Bethesda, that the FBI typed a receipt for it, but that the missile was not surrendered to the FBI. That Secret Service agents brought it back to Secret Service headquarters, where it was turned into the FBI laboratory as a bullet which was found on a Dallas stretcher. Such an incident, if it occurred, would be a major irregularity in the handling of this item of evidence. It suggested to me a last-minute change in the role the intact bullet was to play in this affair, i.e., where it was supposed to have originated. Certainly, that was supported by the post-midnight call to Daryl Tomlinson in Dallas telling him not to discuss the bullet. Darrell Tomlinson was the Parkland employee who actually discovered the bullet. Because neither Humes nor Boswell ever spoke of such an incident, Osborne's assertion required corroboration. I was most surprised to discover corroboration in the report filed by FBI agents Sybert and O'Neill of their questioning of Secret Service agent Gerald Ben, the special agent in charge of the White House detail. The Cybert and O'Neill interview of Gerald Ben on November 27, 1963 was extraordinary because it appears that the two agents were questioning Ben about three matters pertaining to the autopsy, all dealing with how evidence reached the mainstream of the investigation. The first question was not listed, but the answer had to do with Air Force Two passing Air Force One in flight. My conclusion was that the first question probably was, why was the body there before we were? The second question was listed. Mr. Ben was questioned concerning the section of the President's skull, which was brought to the National Navy Medical Center at Bethesda, Maryland, after the autopsy was in progress. On Friday night, according to the telegram they sent at 2 o'clock a.m., Seibert and O'Neill had apparently been told the bone was flown in from Dallas Hospital. On November 27, 1963, Ben told them it was found in the car. And the third question, considered in the light of the Osborne assertion, now made sense. Ben was likewise questioned concerning the location of a bullet which had been found on a stretcher at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, and which had been turned over by the Secret Service to an agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation for delivery to the FBI laboratory. Sybert and O'Neill's wording was precise. They were not questioning Ben about which stretcher the bullet was found on in Dallas. They were questioning him on the bullet's location. I believe they must have asked. What was a bullet which, we were subsequently told, originated on a Dallas stretcher doing at the Bethesda Morgue? In view of Osborne's account, the receipt issued by Sybert and O'Neill, which matched the bullet but not the fragments, and Sybert and O'Neill's questioning of Gerald Ben about the location of the bullet, it seemed reasonable to believe that the incident reported by Admiral Osborne did in fact occur. The bullet must have been at Bethesda, and the Secret Service probably took possession of it, explaining to Sybert and O'Neill that the missile had been found in Dallas and would be delivered to the FBI laboratory. Since the receipt in question was issued to Captain John Stover, the commanding officer of the U.S. Naval Medical School and Hume's immediate superior in April 1980, I contacted Stover. I went directly to the point and told him about Osborne's allegation, the committee's position, and Osborne's insistence that he saw the bullet in the room, indeed that he held it in his hand. Stover confirmed the bullet was in the Bethesda Morgue. It seems to me that the one they found in Dallas they brought up. I think it was in a brown paper envelope. Stover said he was unaware that Osborne had held the bullet, Stover said he himself had not. He said he associated the bullet with a brown paper envelope, one of those slim ones with the opening across the narrow end. I asked Stover about the receipt he signed. He said, I am not sure what that's uh, the complete round that you are talking about. It's the thing I may or may not have signed uh, the receipt for. Then he added, I signed a receipt for some fragments. Stover was not questioned about the matter by the committee. He told me his entire contact with the committee was one or two phone calls. What was ironic about the committee's handling of this affair was its reliance on Paul O'Connor and James Jenkins to refute Admiral Osborne. Neither of them said the committee could recall any foreign object, specifically a missile, Being discovered during the autopsy. But what Purdy and Flanagan didn't know at the time they conducted their investigation was that what Paul O'Connor meant by the opening of the coffin was the arrival of Kennedy's body in a body bag inside a shipping casket. Whereas what Admiral Osborne called the coffin opening was the opening of a ceremonial casket after a delay of some time while Humes was waiting for everyone to be there. Moreover, the committee staff seems to have been unaware of the powerful corroboration provided Osborne by the Seibert and O'Neill interview of Ben. My own preoccupation for the Osborne assertion grew when I put the various events on a timeline. The Military District of Washington casket team brought in the casket at 8 o'clock p.m. Osborne witnessed a casket opening sometime afterward. At 8.50, Secret Service Chief James Raleigh turned in the bullet and said it had been found on a Dallas stretcher. Sometime after that, he made a call to Bethesda and told Kellerman that the bullet had been found on a Dallas stretcher. Between 11 and 12 o'clock, according to Sybert and O'Neill, they called the FBI laboratory and first learned that a bullet had been found on a stretcher. The question that had always seemed strange was why, if the Secret Service had the bullet since 2 o'clock p.m., that they had not notified the FBI laboratory until 8.50 p.m. Air Force One has radio telephones. The FBI could easily have been notified that a bullet had been found and would be delivered after the plane landed. Air Force One landed about 6 o'clock p.m. Special Agent Johnson's memo indicates it wasn't turned over to Rally until 7.30. Why a 90-minute further delay before Rally was told about the bullet? And why another one hour and 20-minute delay until 8.50 when the FBI was notified? This peculiar behavior on the part of the Secret Service officials in the handling of this item of evidence only enhanced the credibility of the account of Admiral Osborne. Osborne's account and Stover's corroboration implied the incident was witnessed by others at Bethesda who had chosen to say nothing about it. These would have included Dr. Humes and Dr. Boswell and Sybert and O'Neill, who omitted it from their report on the autopsy. Hume's statement to me was not an outright denial. Rather, it was consistent with the view that the bullet was not connected with the body on which he was preparing to do an autopsy. Well, they found a bullet in Dallas, he said, and whether they brought it there or not, I can't tell you. I I don't even remember that. I, I don't know. It was not my problem at that point. Certainly no bullet came with the wrappings of the president. What did Humes mean when he said, it was not my problem, at that point? I never called back Osborne to find out what explanation Humes provided when he called. The conflict is irreconcilable. Still, I have wondered about the conversation that must have passed between those two men who have been friends for 25 years, when the only alternatives are that one of them imagined he held a bullet or the other has chosen to remain silent about the incident during the course of all previous government investigations. Well, there you have it. Another very curious and interesting goings-on inside the autopsy. Was it simply that they were not telling the truth about the origin of that bullet? Did they bring the bullet to the autopsy? Was there an indication that they weren't sure how they were going to play the narrative of that bullet until the autopsy began to unfold? Was it a second bullet? All of these questions, of course, remain unanswered. And like I say to you in almost every episode, you can't write this stuff. Thank you for listening to episode 71 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.